FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. An estimated one million people thronged to Atlanta for the 2019 Super Bowl. When the opposing teams and visiting fans returned home, a series of murals depicting Atlanta's civil rights and social justice journey stayed behind. Among the 11 artists who painted murals for the Off the Wall initiative surrounding the big game is artist Gilbert Young. His iconic 40-year-old image, He Ain't Heavy, is now installed in huge scale on the side of an Atlanta apartment complex. Gilbert Young is here to talk about that and other aspects of a remarkable career. Welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you for being here. All right. So He Ain't Heavy, this is regarded as one of the most recognized works of your art. How mm-hmm. would you describe it? What does it look like? Well, it depicts a, a man reaching over for the hand of another person, lifting and trying to lift him up. And what I did there, I did not join the hands together. I gave the space and the tension between the hands so that uh, the, the consumer that, that is viewing the artwork would take it upon himself to be involved in, into the painting itself. And uh, whatever your state of mind is, whether he can be able to accomplish that or not, it would be strictly upon the viewer to, mm-hmm. to uh, answer that question for us. So I left that question open, and hopefully that's, I think, why it was uh, an important part of my history, because as 77 years old, I, I've been through the civil rights movement myself, and, and I came up with the ideas over 40 years ago when I was sitting in front of the TV and thinking, how can we, we had passed certain laws and I was thinking, how could I express mm-hmm. that? And what was the real, uh, or I feel, uh, the real condition that, that we can make a change within ourselves to, to better ourselves by if each one would take it upon themselves to reach back and help those who are less fortunate. When did you originally paint it? You said 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Was that the origin? Yeah, yes, I was in Cincinnati at the, at the time. Mm-hmm. I lived in Cincinnati. I've been here for over 23 years now. Well, and that's an interesting thing, too, because I believe that you came here to do another big, huge art project surrounding a big event, the Olympics. The Olympics. Mm-hmm. I came down for the Olympics, and somehow uh, I got chosen as the artist to to uh, be involved in the Olympic Worldwide Contest with young people around peace. Mm -hmm. And I got to curate that project and be a part of that and uh, working with groups here. So big, big entry into the Atlanta (laughs) art scene, certainly. And this piece now, it is owned by, you've painted it for several people. Spike Lee has a Mm -hmm. copy, former President Jimmy Carter, former Atlanta mayor. Maynard Jackson. Now it's right there in the heart of downtown, not too far from HBCUs like Clark Atlanta, Morehouse, Spelman. So you created it to express this idea that the big question, as you said, that was lingering then. Why do you think it's gained so much interest and it still works 40 years later? A struggle will never end in any community. It's always a, a growth there and there's always a need for to do justice. And I spent a lifetime painting social statements that has to do with the plight of my people and has to do with the consciousness of our society. Well, now this big message is there. How did you start painting? Were you, do you, were you born in Cincinnati? 
I started drawing at the young age of six and seven years old, and, and fortunately a teacher recognized the talent and, and allowed me to uh, paint the Easter Bunny before <laughs> before the school break. And uh, I was on stage in front of my little colleagues and students, and when I heard the applause, I said, that's it, I want to be an artist. So that's one thing, to mm-hmm. do it on stage with other people, but many hours for an artist are spent quietly inside of a studio. How did, how did that continue to feed you, that need to be seen? First of all, I didn't realize, and I think that this is one of the problems that society uh, has uh, developed. I found out later on in life that, that I'm dyslexic. Mm. And so, therefore, I wasn't the best student in the world. The only thing that I could do well at that particular time was to draw and, and create. And I remember going home with a note saying that from one of the teachers, who probably was an English major or something of that nature, said that Gilbert was a daydreamer. Mm. Uh, again, because of teachers and guidance, asked my parents to uh, get me into a uh, special school, which was on a Saturday, which was free program mm-hmm. at the art museum. At 10 and 11 years old, I was traveling to the art museum on a Saturday, and I would just walk through this wonderful place and see all this great art, and then to sit there and be able to draw and get accolades from my community and from my family that I've done something well. And my mother was smart enough to attack, and I mean really attacks one of the patients that she was a nurse aide and saying, my son is an artist and he needs a job because he saw restoration artists on his his ID. And what happened was, uh, he said I was too young, I was 16. Next thing I know, I was became 18. I had a wonderful scholarship, but I still needed money. From this patient of your mom's? Yes, and so he he gave me a job cleaning up the the restoration studio. And like all curious young people, I'm snooping around and I dropped a three thousand dollar painting <laughs> on the corner of the table, put a hole in it, and I thought I was going to get fired because I needed that twenty dollars a week that I was making. And uh, instead of getting fired. He took me down about all the equipment that is needed to be a, a conservator and started training me. And I became, after three years, a full-fledged restorer and an artist at the same time. Wow. Gilbert Young is with us. He is an Atlanta-based artist, a fantastic artist, and one of the muralists featured in Atlanta's Off the Wall Initiative. But he's actually celebrating or marking the 40th anniversary of a work that's really become iconic called He Ain't Heavy. Painted it, and it's been replicated in many places. But now it's on the side of a building in Atlanta. This was part of the Off the Wall Initiative right around the time of the Super Bowl. But it's also interesting that those are huge-scale works. I mean, you must have been, if you're restoring art, you're restoring old works mm-hmm. that have been around for a long time. Yes. And the history, of course, of Western art anyway, yes. is art painted by white people for the mm-hmm. most part. Yes. Did you see a need to see yourself reflected? No, in work? A, a, a much so. And one of the things that my first idol that I discovered was an artist by the name of Charles White. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I knew about Henry Tanner 
and uh, Motley, and I start studying black artists, finding enough information to satisfy my need and and hopefully go in the direction to uh, make my statement as well. And so I know when I was a young boy, 18, and when I found, I found Charles White, I said, well, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be better than Charles White. And, <laughs> and of course, I never did. <laughs> but but uh, I studied him. I studied Norman Rockwell because they told a story. And, each, and I think that the most important pieces i ever seen had a universal story in it. Mm-hmm. And that's what I tried to do. And I never just create artwork for art's sake. I create artwork to tell you a story, to tell you something that was on my mind, tell you something that I remember. And now I'm one of the artists that represent a, another major artist by the name of Bill Trailer. Bill Trailer, who's the self-taught artist self-taught from artist Alabama? From Alabama, who started, started his art career at 85. Mm. So I still got a few more years before I turn 85 <laughs> and I can be as great as he is. Well, it's one of the stories that uh, came across to me. This is a work. It's called Liberty. Mm-hmm. Black and white image mm-hmm. of an African-American woman as Lady Liberty. She's mm-hmm. you know wearing the crown and the mm-hmm. cloak holding an African-American man in her arms. What's the story there? Well, you know, if you look at the, the great art pieces, I'm, I'm trying to reinterpret some of the things, and one of the things is Michelangelo Piata. Mm-hmm. And so and rather than Jesus Christ, I have a, a black man. And the Statue of Liberty... That's the, the Pietas, the Virgin he, Mary holding rather, him down from the cross. Right. And, instead of that, that individual of Jesus in her arms, I, I changed the two figures to the uh, black liberty and have a young black man that has, has been murdered or killed. And on the side, uh, in the left-hand corner, is three bullet shells. And on the right side, there's a flame. The torch of, uh, of justice has gone out. And so uh, using those references to create a new piece and call it Liberty, uh, which sometimes uh, cause some controversy. I think one of the things that, that happens with most uh, conversations and conversations of importance is that we are not comfortable uh, sitting down and talking about our differences and talking about the history of this country when it comes to racism and when it comes to people of color. That is one of the most difficult things to mm-hmm. overcome uh, because there's a long history. And the more you study history, the more you see what uh, disadvantages and advantages that people have over other people. And today we still have this the same problem, I think. Well. You are one of the few artists in the world to paint a portrait of former President Barack Obama and to have it signed by him. This piece is called History Plus Hope Equals Change. Mm -hmm. Where is that hope? You just said we're going to keep having this conversation. Well, the hope is that there will always be people that that are willing to have the conversation and will be willing to to confront uh, uh, injustices. And so what was great about having the opportunity to be in front of him at at that particular time was that he recognized my work, not me. (laughs) He didn't know me from Adam, but he recognized the work and then turned around and said to the audience that that I was a legend. And um, so that was one of the most exciting part that he recognized what I had done 
and then I was uh, getting ready to sign the uh, the portrait just for a uh, photo op, mm-hmm. and he took the pen from me and signed it himself. <laughs> Not bad company. Yeah. You were also commissioned by the Congressional Club of Washington to create a portrait of Michelle Obama. So, you know, this is huge. <laughs> what, what, do, what do these milestones mean to you, you know, from a, a, a young daydreamer, mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. Uh, who got his start kind of accidentally, kind of through the kindness of strangers mm-hmm. um, in this case, to be recognized by the, the you know the first lady and first the president of the United States at that time. Well, listen, I, I'm in good company. I have not lived up to to those other people that that I I hold in great esteem as of yet. And history we will will do that. I can't say where I am, uh, but it was such a great opportunity to be there. I've been with three presidents over my career. And, you know, I'm just a little kid from the West End who had a dream and and could and, and I worked hard at, at and to execute skills and and so on. And just by the grace of God, being put in position. And that's a great responsibility. And I always say that once I receive an award, I have to go out and earn it because they, they expect the expectation. And then we ask uh, the major question with man is who am I? What is? How did I get here? Why? Why do I have to leave so early? Uh, if I had my way, I I would take and relive my life in different forms. And, and but most of all, I'd be an artist and be able to create whatever. I I wish I could play music. I wish I could sing. I wish I could dance. None of these <laughs> gifts that were given to me. The only thing that was given to me, I can use a pencil. <laughs> Well, that is an understatement from Atlanta-based artist Gilbert Young. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. He is one of the muralists featured in Atlanta's Off the Wall initiative. And we do have a link to see his work at our website, gpbnews.org. And by the way, that He Ain't Heavy, it was recently installed at Capitol Gateway Apartments in Atlanta. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The Peabody Award winners were announced this week. Among them, Type Investigations and Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX for their Monumental Lies series. We spoke with reporters Brian Palmer and Seth Fried Wessler when their series first aired last year. They also wrote about their investigation for Smithsonian Magazine. The pair filed 175 open records requests to track public spending on Confederate memorials and organizations. They found that more than 40 million taxpayer dollars have been spent on the maintenance and expansion of Confederate monuments and sites over the past decade. Brian and Seth visited more than 50 of these sites, and when we spoke in December, I asked them how they started the investigation. We went on the road and we began visiting dozens of places that tell the story of the Civil War and of Confederacy and of slavery to really try to figure out what the story was that was being told at these sites. At the same time, we tried to figure out how much money was being spent on these sites. And so we filed dozens and of public records requests and called through tax documents and public records, uh, public legislative reports to figure out what we're spending on on these places. And what we found is that Confederate sites, many of them, are telling a story that's really not based in fact, but grounded in in narratives that 
defend the Confederacy and uh, paint a picture of the history of slavery that whitewashes history entirely. Well, I want to get to the story, certainly, but the story that you did file together for a Smithsonian magazine, it's called The Costs of the Confederacy, 40 million taxpayer dollars over the last decade paid to upkeep and support these places. Can you give us a breakdown of the costs? What were they spent on? That's a snapshot, $40 million in the past 10 years, significant amount of money. But my real concern, uh, in addition to how much is being spent now, is how much went into subsidizing these sites that present a narrative that either distorts or erases the enslavement of African Americans, my ancestors. The first push of monument construction was really 1880s, 1890s. So this is where you see public funding as well as significant private donations going into the uh, funding of, of these places. But Confederate memorial associations were receiving money to take care of cemeteries pretty much directly after the Civil War, which made sense. You had a lot of uh, Confederate deceased soldiers that needed to be buried. That money, which started to flow in you know, 1860s, 1870s, kept flowing. So there are all of these really creative ways to keep these subsidies not simply for the initial purpose. So now that money, is it going just to maintain these sites? Are, we know that you know sites have been built up into the 50s and the 1960s. Or are they actually expanding any of them at this point? In Georgia, there are a number of state and county-run parks where there's a full articulation of the history of the Civil War of Confederate leaders. And public money is going to support these sites um, to keep them running. In many cases, the public money is just going to keep them operating as they have for decades. And in some cases, these places have expanded. So we spent a lot of time on the road and in our story, writing about a place called Beauvoir, which is in Mississippi, in Biloxi. It's called the Jefferson Davis Presidential Library. That institution has received over $20 million in the last decade. And that money, which came from the federal government and from the state of Mississippi, has helped the place expand. After Hurricane Katrina, Beauvoir, the estate where Jefferson Davis lived in the years after the war was heavily damaged. And federal dollars uh, went to Beauvoir to help it rebuild. Half of the $17 million that came from the federal government went to build a new museum and library that really didn't exist before the storm and that tell a story about Jefferson Davis and about the Civil War that glorifies him, that talks about the sort of bravery of Confederate soldiers and proposes that Jefferson Davis was a benevolent slave owner. Well, and it's a very similar narrative that we found at, say, Tombs House, and they don't, Tombs House in Washington, Georgia, doesn't get the same amount of funding, but it had a lovely renovation, again, substantially with public funding. And when I visited, I was the only person there on a very cold day in January, and I went through the entire house and uh, saw the, the periodization of Mr. Toombs's career, but nothing on the walls about the defense of slavery uh, and his role in enslaving people. So I asked a docent, so where, where is that? And she said, well, we don't have anything on the wall, but she handed me a WPA 
slave narrative by a gentleman named Alonzo Fontroy Toombs. And this gentleman was, was singing the praises of his massa and his enslavement. We are used to having people deploy the so-called black confederate and the loyal slave. But this is where I handed off to, to Seth, and Seth tracked down a scholar uh, who gave us a very different story about Toombs. Well, at both the Robert Toombs House and the A.H. Stevens State Park, both of which are in Georgia, mm-hmm. b- both of which are owned by the state. In the case of the Toombs House, it's now run by the county. We hear this story about valiant and noble Confederate leaders, but really no narrative about their position on slavery or about people who these men held in bondage and who then escaped the the places where they were held in bondage. Scholars have found histories in both cases of people who left who escaped these plantations. Nowhere in the tours or in the materials on the walls or in the museums attached to these spaces is that story told. Instead, what we hear at the A.H. Stevens house, for example, A.H. Stevens was the vice president of the Confederacy. We hear about how well he treated the people he enslaved, how happy they were, uh, how good their lives were. He's probably most famous among scholars and people who know anything about him for a fiery speech he gave defending secession um, and defending the Confederacy on the basis that slavery was just. He said, quote, the Negro is not equal to the white man, Mm -hmm. that slavery subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. This is his most famous Mm -hmm. speech, and that's nowhere to be found at the museum. Instead, we get a picture of him as this sort of benevolent figure. Brian Palmer and Seth Fried Wessler are my guests. They're reporters for the Investigative Fund at the Nation Institute. Through visits and open record requests, they learned, like, that places like A.H. Stevens State Park in Crawfordsville, Georgia, receive millions of dollars in public funding while often obscuring or conveying inaccurate information about the history of slavery. Their article, Costs of the Confederacy, is in Smithsonian Magazine. Well, I want to go back to Beauvoir because you got some, uh, spoke with some of the people there and got some audio. This is the Jefferson Davis Home and Presidential Library in Biloxi, or near Biloxi, Mississippi. You describe it, you know, centuries-old trees, manicured lawns, tidy cemetery, a babbling brook. And during one of your visits, there was a large group of Mississippi schoolchildren along with Civil War reenactors. Here is one of them telling a version of Civil War history. You see, a Civil War is where one bunch of folks tries to overthrow the government, uh, the sitting government. And we weren't doing that. We wanted to establish our own country. We didn't care that the North carried on and kept going the way they were going. That was fine with us. Just leave us alone. Let us build our own country. That was the version of history that was given to visitors. You did speak to the then executive director, his name, Thomas Paine, about what they were presenting there. What did he tell you? At Beauvoir, on the one hand, they'll tell you, well, our state mandate is to address the period that Jefferson Davis lived here. So that's 
post-Civil War, 1877 until his death in 1889. But on the other hand, we have this entire room devoted to the Confederate soldier. And then, of course, their annual fall muster, which happened uh, just a few months ago in the fall. That's devoted to Confederate reenactments or uh, mock battles that actually never happened. Once we press people on the issue of slavery or the African-American experience, one of the responses is, well, we don't have enough room on the walls to deal with that. And for me, that, that actually wasn't a good enough answer because there's this strategy that folks who talk about the Confederacy in this lost cause way use, and it's how they deploy the folks that they believe are loyal slaves, which they do at Beauvoir. There are a couple of panels on the wall that talk about two formerly enslaved people who came back to serve the Davises. The other side of that, or the context, there are the sins of omission. The 190,000, 200,000 African Americans who served in the United States colored troops, among them my great-grandfather. There are the uh, half a million African Americans who liberated themselves before the end of the Civil War. Mm. And then if we're dealing with that period uh, post-Civil War in Mississippi, there's a whole lot of lynching going on. And there was a whole lot of uh, activity taking place under the, uh, the banner of redemption, which was the, the, you know, in, in 1890, the stripping of African American men the right to vote, which they won in the Civil War and during Reconstruction. So it is a consistent strategy that relies upon really the co-opting of African-American voices to this cause of a noble, glorious Confederacy and pre-war way of life. This has been a consistent strategy from about 1866. Mm. Well, let me just play another piece of audio and credit also that this is from Reveal. This is a, the investigative t uh, radio program that we broadcast here on GPB, among other places. Uh, you asked a docent at Beauvoir what she could tell you about slavery. I want to tell them the honest truth about it, that slavery was good and bad. It was good for the people that didn't know how to take care of themselves and they needed a job. And you had good slave owners like Jefferson Davis who took care of his slaves and treated them like family. He loved them. Well, we have seen in the last couple of years, especially the the more sort of, let's say, historically accurate museums that have been created. Um, just here in Savannah, the Telfair Museum, in a renovation, found all sorts of evidence of the lives of the slaves and slave quarters and are presenting that. More and more plantations mm -hmm. are presenting that. What would you want to see here at these Confederate memorials? Because as we know, there have been arguments for, well, give them context, you know, talk about what was actually going on contextually. Is the issue that you're seeing, like, whose context is actually created and presented? I think there's a great example here, Stone Mountain, right? It is now much more than simply a Confederate site, right? It's a public amenity. It's a mm -hmm. park. It's this and that. And yet you have that giant mountainside carving, and then you have the Stone Mountain Memorial Association, which is still charged with protecting that Confederate monument. It is organized as a site to perpetuate Confederate history. The idea that it, it's great for jobs, it's all of this, it's all of that, and yet the central 
attraction of that place, they got the laser light show and all that other sort of stuff, is a monument to a history that did not occur. So Stone Mountain now has about $13 million in bonds um, allotted for it. Over $200,000 of that money has been dispersed. Now, they'll say, well, that's for a resort and conference center. Well, the money is still going to subsidize this site that, that is built around an object and an ideology that is corrosive to our democracy. Folks will say, oh, well, the black people, they're offended by uh, Robert E. Lee statues. No, what I'm offended by is the lies that allow us to or allow some people to perpetuate this idea that certain people are at the center of our history and other people, black people, Latino people, all sorts of people are at the periphery. And that's the problem with this type of funding. You found that funds are often allocated by municipal and county coffers and have been for many years. That money has just been channeled in that direction to pay for these kind of monuments and sites. And officials exercise judgment on priorities in those counties. Do you think that taxpayers are aware of how these dollars are being spent? And as you say, by exposing this, maybe people will come forward and say, we don't want our money being spent on this. What, what do you think? What's the effect been so far? I think there's a lot of surprise that there's been public money flowing to these sites from the very beginning and that that public money continues to flow. $40 million at least over the last decade. Right. We certainly missed money at the county and local level um, spent on statues and, and monuments. These are public in public spaces. Many of them are public institutions, state parks, and money is flowing to them. And if there's public money going to these institutions, then it would seem to us that there's an obligation to make sure that the histories being told in these spaces conform with the facts and right. uh, don't try to tell a story of the Confederacy, of Confederate leaders, of Confederate so soldiers that, that glorifies those people and denies completely the reality of the experience of enslaved people, of African Americans in these very spaces. That was my earlier conversation with Ryan Palmer and Seth Fried Wessler about their investigation for Reveal and the Smithsonian Magazine called Monumental Lies. After we aired the conversation, Sam Burnham, curator of the All the Biscuits in Georgia blog and an On Second Thought guest, disputed their claim, saying, In the author's mind, there is no space for anything positive about the South or the Confederacy. And while a narrative of a guiltless Confederacy is inaccurate, to deny that issues other than slavery played a role not only in the war, but also the way these leaders helped shape the path of the nation is just as inaccurate and wrong. We thank you for your comments, Sam. By unanimous vote, the Peabody Board of Jurors begs to differ, however. They called their investigation a nuanced report that adds depth to current debates about how the public should mark troubling chapters of our national history and explores how lost cause ideology often substitutes for historical accuracy. The series was awarded a Peabody this week. Just ahead, the Black Lips return to their home state for next week's Shaky Knees Festival. We'll talk about the road from Dunwoody High to recording with Yoko Ono and, rumor has it, Kesha. Stay with us for that. I'm Virginia Prescott. This is On Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Mirror, mirror. Who's the greatest of them all? 
Atlanta's own Black Lips is a band that keeps audiences on their toes, both literally, which you'd know if you ever landed in the mosh pit at one of their shows, and figuratively. I mean, who'd have thunk that the latest It Bag line from Gucci is named for band member Zumi Rossow? 20 years in the business, they have made unruly garage rock, rockabilly records, and sometimes sound like old country crooners. Black Lips are currently on tour, but return to Atlanta to hit the stage on the first day of the Shaking Knees Music Festival. That's on Friday, May 3rd. You are now listening to their song, Veni Vidi Vici, as we kick off our conversation with founding members Jared Swilly and Cole Alexander, joining us from the studio in Portland, Maine. Jared, Cole, welcome. Hey, how you doing? Hello. So happy to hear you. I know you're going to be in Atlanta soon. Thank you for making time for us today. Oh, our pleasure. So some origin stories here. You two started the band, what, 20 years ago when you were at Dunwoody High School? Or actually, maybe I should correct that, after you got kicked out of Dunwoody High School. <laughs> well, we, 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 we actually were, we started the band while, while we were in there. We were kicked out shortly after. Uh, together? Yeah. Separately? What happened? We got kicked out separately. Yeah, Cole was first, and I was a few days later, I think. So you guys were bad kids, like your song. Let's hear a little bit of that. Yeah, well, not not like we were good, bad, not evil. (laughs) What's the distinction there? Well, no, never anything with malicious intent, just like smoking cigarettes and cutting class and stuff like that. So yeah. mi- minor league bad. Yeah. Yeah. Misdemeanors. All right. Well, I want to know more about you growing up. You both worked at the Majestic, the diner on Ponce de Leon. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. What, what were those early days of the band like? I mean, we all lived in a big house with 10 or 11 people in a home park. It was kind of like a... A frat house for people that didn't go to college. Uh, it was called Dice Slaughter House. You know, we'd usually go on tour for about a month, and then we'd have to come back home and work for a month to save up to go on tour because, well, you pretty much had to pay to go on tour because we didn't make any money. Yeah, Majestic was very supportive, though, because we'd still have a job if we left for a long time on tour and came back. We'd still have our job, so that was important for us to have that, that stability since we weren't making money touring. But I always knew that this is what I was going to do. Uh, I liked, you know, the Majestic and all that, but, you know, I kind of wanted to be on the road and be making records. And Jared, you come from a long line of preachers, right? Yeah. uh, My grandfather, uh, all my great uncles, uncles, all that. I mean, I guess I'm still kind of in the preaching business in a sense. Well, I wondered about that. Do you you feel like that? Do you feel like you are, you know, spreading the gospel of a certain kind? Spreading, you know, just good vibes and trying to get people to have a good time. Um, I mean, it's essentially the same line of work. Uh, you know, they all played music on stage. Um, so I was all very used to it. I guess it's in, it's in my blood. All my favorite musicians cut their teeth in the pulpit and in church. Well, there's one particular musician, I understand, the Mighty Hannibal, another Atlanta native, funk musician, soul musician. He was a kind of a mentor to you, wasn't he, Jared? Yeah, yeah. He was, yeah, he was my mentor. He always called me his protege. We became real good friends after we did a show in New York City in like 2004 or something. And then he hadn't been back to Atlanta since the 70s, so I arranged for him to come back and we were his backup band. And pretty much I've talked to him at least once a day, every day until, you know, until he passed a couple of years ago. Yeah, I have to say that his hymn number five, I think, is one of the greatest protest songs ever written. I want somebody to tell my mother 
and go down yonder in Georgia and tell my father that I'm way over here, crawling in these trench holes, covered with blood. But one thing that I know, there's no tomorrow. Fantastic. Yeah, it's fantastic. I think that one is the one that kind of got him blacklisted from radio, though. Yeah, uh, people wouldn't play it. Well, I'm thinking that you you make a nod as a band to so many different kinds of music, to rock and roll, to blues, soul, psychedelica, punk. Um, maybe I would even argue country. I think there's a lot of great country sort of theme in your music. I've even yeah, heard big a time. Is that something that you grew up thinking of and 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 listening to when you were kids? I pretty much like all kinds of music. I mean, it tends to be more outsider music and more like raw stuff. And country has a lot of that. We're actually kind of working on, or we just finished a country record now. Um, well, our interpretation of country, it's not purist by any means. But, you know, we always, you know, we, we like a lot of different rec- kinds of records and kinds of music. And country is something I kind of came up on, as well as, you know, gospel and rock and roll. Yeah, a lot of traditional, like, Southern American art forms were influential. Do, yeah. what, are some, what are some records that people who would like to understand you a little bit better in that outsider country genre might listen to? They're not all outsiders, but like Charlie Feathers. Mm. Um, there was a comp we listened to a lot called Godless America that kind of compiled a lot of like weirdo country music and yeah, some some certain songs from artists that were kind of darker or weirder. Is, I, like, I would Eddie, it. like Eddie, like one of the best songs would be like uh, Eddie, Eddie Nowak. Nowak. You think I'm psycho, don't you, Mama? You think I'm psycho, don't you, Mama? You better let him lock me up. That one's, uh, man, that one's super weird and is really good. Uh, oh, he did that song, Dolores. Eddie yeah, Noah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That That's guy. Why you know okay. that one. I know, yeah. I know a little bit. I have some, I have some arcane country music taste myself. Well, your music, I mean, your rebellion and defiance, which has gotten you into trouble a couple of times or maybe. Ten times. You were almost arrested in India once, I understand. What what happened there? Uh, well, tour is going great and all, but we were kind of like didn't know like how to act. So we were being very reserved. And then the tour manager we had was like, oh, just do whatever you want. And we played this really wild show at a university there in Chennai, India. And uh, I thought it went great. It went off without a hitch. But like Cole and Ian kissed each other. And I guess... Didn't go over well. <laughs> the sponsors no. of the tour, they called the police, and uh, we just had to get all of our stuff from the hotel, and we took a taxi like 10 hours to the next state. Like, all the kids liked it. They thought it was fine, but I guess who was, I guess kissing, like man kissing is a big no-no there. Yeah. yeah. The bottom fell out of the tour pretty much after that. So, Cole, I also understand that you were once head-butted by somebody in the audience at a show in Paris, right? Yeah, yeah. We've had, like, little bits of, like, rowdy bouncers and fans, a little bit of violence, um, but just kind of part of the territories. It's always kind of, to me, part of just, like, the entertainment of it. No no one's ever gotten, like, seriously injured or anything, I don't think. But 20 years in, do you ever get tired of that? You know, the rowdiness or the the risk of, like, oh, I'm going out on a show. This could, you know, I I could get my head split. We kind of like the idea of any moment all hell could break loose. That That's kind of a good feeling to incorporate fear and other emotions into the music instead of just happiness. It can be happy and scary at the same time. So that's the edge that you're looking for? Well, it just kind of came naturally, I guess, but yeah. 
Yeah. So th- this is something I've heard. You, you've described yourself as having ODD, oppositional, <laughs> de- oppositional yeah, we, defiant disorder, which is a real thing. Yeah, we thought it was a joke. Yeah, we first. thought it was fake, but uh, but it seemed like it described us. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, you, I know it was a real thing. Yeah. I think you got a band wide diagnosis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm seeking treatment right now. <laughs> I somehow don't believe you. <laughs> well, as long as you don't tell me to seek treatment. I'll <laughs> yeah, if you tell us not to seek treatment, then we will. You, because you do the absolute opposite of what you're being yeah, told to do. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. yeah. Well, and so you've definitely chosen the right life for yourself. Because not, you know, if you had oppositional defiance disorder in a lot of jobs, you wouldn't last. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I would be toast in a lot of professions. But this one caters to all my disabilities. <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about your music. Your 2011 album is called Arabia Mountain, referring to uh, the National Heritage Area that's just outside of Atlanta. This was produced by Mark Ronson. Let's hear just a little bit of one of those songs called Modern Art. The cover photo on this record was taken at Arabia Mountain. Have I got that right? Yeah. yeah. So so why why this place so central to this record? People were always asking us when we were touring on that, at that album what the name meant. It was a pretty simple answer, because like, that's the place where we took the picture. There's no... <laughs> yeah. We did, we did a, we did a m- Middle Eastern tour, which is just kind of coincidental around that time. But that was right so around the time of, of the Arab Spring, wasn't it? I mean, that that's yeah. what I was thinking, 2011. Yeah, it was kind of in the air a little bit, I think. We spent a couple of years trying to get our tour booked in the Middle East. We had to actually postpone it for a year because uh, we were going out of Damascus. We had gone to the Syrian embassy in Washington, D.C. to get you know the clearance for all the stuff. And the person booking the tour was in Damascus. Pretty crazy. I mean, a pretty crazy knack for timing, I guess, in that yeah. case. We were all approved to go in and everything. But yeah, then but we switched our home base to Beirut after that. My guests are Atlanta natives Jared Swilly and Cole Alexander, in other words, the founders of Black Lips, one of the Georgia bands headlining the upcoming Shaky Knees Music Festival. And we're catching up with them while they're on tour from Portland, Maine. You told us earlier that the album you're working on is a country album. So is this the first time you're making a full record in a particular style? Yeah, this new one's the first time we've ever had any sort of kind of a concept before. Usually there's no rhyme or reason to it. But this one, we kind of want it to be more... Rootsy and stuff like that. Well, it's interesting that you say that because that the record that you did uh, it was produced by Sean Lennon, Satan's Graffiti or God's Art. Uh, I think it was Pitchfork. They said it was a concept album while making a complete mockery of the medium. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of that's pretty spot on. Because I think Sean was like said something about us making a concept record, but our concept was uh, nothing. <laughs> yeah. It seemed like we were making a concept, but we weren't, I guess. <laughs> well, let's hear a little bit from there. This is uh, the song Occidental Front, and Yoko Ono, of all people, sings a little bit on this song. Yeah. Sean Lennon. I mean, you've also worked with Mark Ronson. You've worked with Patrick Carney from the Black Keys. What is it like working with these, you know, musicians, producers rather, that bring so much to the table and not just in terms of their history, but, you know, a level of fame? 
Mark Ronson was our first uh, experience working with a producer. And honestly, I didn't really know what a producer did before that. And Mark really changed the way I looked at it because he brought so much to the table. And I really was like, oh, now I get why people have producers. Yeah, he opened our ears and minds to working with them in the future after that. What, yeah, is that, yeah. what does that mean? Like, what kind of things did you do that you hadn't done on records before? Well, I'll do more than one or two takes on a, on a track. <laughs> yeah. uh, having outside perspective. Yeah, is just yeah. Good. It's like having a, like a coach. Yeah, and he brought in the instrumentation. Like, he brought in, like, a saw player and, and horn players and stuff like that. So that kind of opened our minds to new ideas. We kind of met Sean through Mark, so it kind of all fell into place. So what was it like having Yoko in the studio with you, or did she do her track separately? Oh, no, she was in the studio every day. She was probably yeah. in there for like nine or ten days, because we were living at their house the whole time. We were there for like a month. Okay, this is a whole new dimension. So, I mean, it was at first it was really surreal, because, you know, she's so iconic, and we're sitting in her kitchen with her. <laughs> but uh, she was she's really, really cool. After a while, like the... It, it wore off because the first day I'm like, you know, dang, Yoko Ono's sitting right there. Just, <laughs> <laughs> we're just eating sandwiches. Uh, but then, yeah, that, that wore off. She's really cool and far out. Such uh, a great, such an amazing voice to have on that record, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's, yeah she still can belt it out for an 80-something-year-old. Yeah, she's like a master scream, screamer. Mm. <laughs> Okay, so I heard a little bit of a rumor about somebody else that you might be working with. Um, anything you want to tell us about that? Um, we recently did a jam with uh, Kesha. It was a song. Spent a little time in the studio with her. Um, I don't know what'll you know what'll come with it and stuff, but it's not done a, we, yet. We did so. like a tour with her last year. Mm -hmm. We just kind of we met her at Coachella years ago, and it seems like an odd pairing but we kind of just hit it off with her years ago and we've stayed buddies ever since and we always talked about doing stuff together yeah she's from nashville and her mom was like a songwriter she wrote songs like johnny cash and stuff so she actually has a lot of roots in kind of southern music which was kind of fitting for what we're doing right now with the country themed record oh, that's so interesting i actually i'm just trying to imagine what the the union of the two of you would sound like kesha and and black lips yeah it's like country stuff it sounds, it sounds yeah, real good. More rootsy than pop, I'd say, but yeah. But I'm oh, so cool. excited to hear the record. In fact, is there anything from the new record that you are able to share with us yet, or is it all unmixed and all raw? Yeah, it's, it just finished getting mixed, and right now it's in the mastering thing, but we'll be playing a lot of it at uh, Shaking Knees. Oh, okay. That is great to hear. Tell me a little bit more about, like, what is it like to be this, you're a hometown band, even though you've been all over the world and <laughs> thrown out of Chennai or whatever. <laughs> that shaky knees. Are you going to show the other bands the ropes here in Atlanta? Oh, we hope to. We hope they'll learn a thing or two from us. Um, <laughs> it's really great to get to play. Last time we played shaky knees, we used, uh, we got some kids from Georgia State Art Department to make us a backdrop that looked like the Braves logo. And then the next day, like 11 Alive or one of them showed up on my front porch and like entered me, interviewed me for the news asking if the Braves were going to sue us. They did. <laughs> they but, did? Uh, no, they did not. Uh, I, don't I think, think they were they happy about it. I don't think it. they cared. Yeah, they thought it, we made them look cool. 
Wow. Okay. So all new facets of the Black Lips. Um, so anyone else, you know, any other big names that are going to be there? Beck, Tame, Impala, Tears for Fears, Cage the Elephant, Interpol going to be there. Everybody's Who? Deer Hunter is playing. Uh, Curtis Harding. I'm looking forward Curtis to Harding. Curtis Harding and Deer Hunter. Well, Basically we, all the local bands. We are so glad that you're going to be coming back. Really, really appreciate your time today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Town Holler. Jared Swilly and Cole Alexander, Atlanta natives and founders of the band Black Lips, currently on a short U.S. tour, but they're going to be hitting the stage at the upcoming Shaking Knees Music Festival. And they joined me from the studio in Portland, Maine. Again, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having us. We're going to leave you with another Black Lips song. This is Oh Katrina. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Rowell, and The Raven Taylor. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Don Smith, our dean of grammar, and Amy Kylie is our senior producer. Sarah Shariari is managing editor for GPB News. And you can always join our conversations going on on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. We're on Twitter at OSD Talk, or you can email us, onsecondthought at gpb.org. I'm Virginia Prescott. Have a great weekend, y'all, and we'll see you on Monday with more On Second Thought. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.